This week on the show, we cover a new project, ZFS.com. TrueNAS Core is ready for deployment. The IPC and FreeBSD got an uh, academic paper. The performance analysis is done there. Unix wildcards gone wild. We have a bit of Unix history and the Unix Wars article and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. Now, episode 371, Wildcards Running Wild, recorded for the 30th of September 2020. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to get the online backup for the truly paranoid. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and other people in between. Uh, big and small to this week's episode of BSD Now with great headlines, which are exciting news because it's a new project from someone you have previously heard on this show as a moderator even. Mariusz Saborski has a new project called ZFS, ZEDFS.com. Yeah, so Mariusz's blog post here says, have you ever had an idea that keeps coming up over and over again for weeks or months? I know that feeling my new project was born from this feeling. On this blog, I mix content a lot. I write about personal posts, uh, about FreeBSD development, about development in general, uh, about security, and about ZFS. This mixed content can be problematic sometimes. I share a lot of stuff here and readers don't know what to expect next. I'm getting excited by so many things that I want to share that excitement with all of you. I've noticed that there aren't many resources strictly focusing on ZFS, the best file system in the world. I can find some Oracle pages and some open ZFS pages or a single post here or there, but not an entire site dedicated solely to ZFS. And we can't forget about the COVID issue. All of that is caused my monthly meetings for the BSD Poland meetup and the No Such meetup to not be happening anymore. Because of all that, I've decided to start a new project, uh, zedfs.com, to focus strictly on ZFS and plan to post news and tutorials about ZFS on this site. The plan is to post there bi-weekly, but we'll see how long that lasts. Mm -hmm. Going forward, I'll treat this blog as my personal blog and will focus mostly on security and open source software development. If that is still too many topics for one place, then maybe we can get yet another blog. But over on zedfs.com, you can already find uh, reposts from this blog, a bunch of my different articles. You can also join his mailing list, and I've even prepared a small gift for you. If you join my mailing list community, you will receive a free ZFS cheat sheet. Ooh. I also plan to share links on news from ZFS all over the world to the mailing list. So if you head over to zfs.com, uh, you can find his articles on how to resume a ZFS send, how disk usage is calculated on ZFS, how check something works, and why ZFS is doing the right thing, uh, some funny ZFS error messages, and how uh, zpool checkpoints uh, work and why you might want to use them. Oh yes, all important information for ZFS beginners and more advanced users i would say well and you know if it's going to have uh useful stuff like news and so on yeah i look forward to having such a nice site yeah it's always something we can like point people to and say if you want to learn about zfs send read this article or give you a bit of a an overview about you know how checksumming in zfs works not the gory details but at least you know how the blocks are built and the, the tree how it looks like and that's that's a perfectly good starting point. 
All right, uh, then Marius, good luck with this site. We hope for more content. We will check back regularly. And uh, yeah, if you're interested, then give Marius a little bit of, uh, you know, good feedback and that encourages him to write more in this space. Okay, now we have news from IX Systems. Uh, the TrueNAS core is ready for deployment. Uh, yeah, they write on their blog that TrueNAS 12.0 RC1 was released yesterday at the time of this uh, post, which was on September 16. That's been a while, but we nevertheless thought it would be interesting for people to know. And with it, TrueNAS Core is ready for deployment. So the merger of FreeNAS and TrueNAS, way back when, into a unified software image can now begin its path to mainstream use. The TrueNAS Core is the new FreeNAS and is on schedule. Okay, great. So the TrueNAS 12.0 beta process started in June and has been the most successful beta release ever with more than 3,000 users and only minor issues. Ars Technica provided a detailed technical walkthrough that's linked from the article uh, of the original beta. There's a long list of features and performance improvements. So during the beta process, TrueNAS 12.0 demonstrated over 1.2 million IOPS or MyOps, I would say, and over 23 gigabits per second on a true NAS M60. Wow, that's a lot of IOPS. Um, oh, yes, true NAS 12.0 RC1 is suitable for less complex or non-mission critical environments. Minor beta issues have been fixed and several performance improvements to ZFS, SMB, iSCSI, and NFS have been integrated. Snapshot your pool, back up your data, and try it out. So links to download it are provided. Uh, the major additions they list are the Z-standard compression. That's uh, the on-par or closer to read-write performance with LZ4 algorithms. Uh, the enclosure management for minis. The TrueNAS mini have well-defined motherboards, wiring, and enclosure, uh, but enables a graphical enclosure management function as well. Previously, this was only available for the TrueNAS X and M series, but now is also available on the minis. The enclosure management function simplifies remote management by providing a graphical view of the drives, their status, and temperatures. Yeah, definitely much easier to have people replace the correct drive if you can tell them it's the top one or the third one from the top, rather than being like, well, I have the device name, but I don't know which one it is, where that maps to the physical, uh, which drive is plugged in where. Mm -hmm. uh, they also have the true command cloud connection, which is a software as a service offering to true command that leverages an integrated WireGuard VPN to connect to each true NAS system through firewalls. And this is the first official release to support this true NAS command cloud functionality and enables them to begin offering the true command cloud trials to interesting users and organization. Wow, cool stuff. Uh, there's also a true NAS 12.0 release in October that uh, seemed to be on the on track to actually be released on that date or in November, uh, October. Um, they appreciate the community testing of the TrueNAS 12.0 beta releases. Uh, it also has been tested on Enterprise HA systems, M-series and X-series with their, within their labs and is now ready for field testing. Uh, the documentation for that is also maturing, they say, and uh, TrueNAS Core is still the best free NAS and you should definitely check it out when it's available as the final product. Cool. Next up, uh, we have a paper from Cambridge University in the UK, Interprocess Communications on FreeBSD 11, a performance analysis. Interprocess Communications, or IPC, is one of the most fundamental functions of a modern operating system. 
playing an essential role in the fabric of contemporary applications. This report conducts an investigation on FreeBSD of the real-world performance considerations behind two of the most common IPC mechanisms, pipes and sockets. A simple benchmark provides a fair sense of effective bandwidth for each, and analysis using DTrace, hardware performance counters, and the operating system source code is presented. We note that pipes outperform sockets by about 63% on average across all configurations, and further, the size of user space transmission buffers has a profound effect on performance. Larger buffers are beneficial up to a point, about 32 to 64 kilobytes, after which performance collapses as a result of the devastating cache exhaustion. A deep scrutiny of the probe effect at play is also presented, justifying the validity of conclusions drawn from these experiments. Because yes, using something like DTrace uh, will have a small performance impact and you know, while trying to measure performance, the measuring it, changing it makes it very hard to measure it. Mm. So they talk about some of their hypotheses, such as increasing the buffer size available to each IPC mechanism will improve the performance up to some maximum, after which it will cause it to degrade, and that pipes will yield better performance than sockets for local communications due to their specific uh, v virtual memory optimizations. And third, the use of information or instruments instrumentation tools such as DTrace or the PMC performance counters will adversely affect the benchmark's performance, but overall the results will demonstrate a consistent shape, of, especially considering their inflection points. Uh, in particular, these experiments were run on a BeagleBone Black Revision C, uh, which has a 32-bit ARM Cortex-A8 1 gigahertz processor with 256 kilobytes of L2 cache and 512 megabytes of DDR3 memory, uh, and were done with FreeBSD 11.0. And you can see they have graphs here showing uh, the performance of a pipe and sockets with two different configurations. And they show, you know, how they measured it and how they uh, changed the buffer sizes and how they looked at the hardware effects of it and everything like that. Mm -hmm. That's a nice paper. I found very similar results. Uh, specifically, a set of tests I did a couple of years ago was on changing the buffer size of pipes. Uh, again, as you might guess, if I'm trying to make ZFSN go faster. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and currently on FreeBSD, the pipe buffer size is variable. I think it defaults to 16 kilobytes, but can grow up to 64 kilobytes based on uh, how big the chunks you're reading and writing to the pipe are. Um, but I looked at taking it even further and allowing, you know, a pipe buffer size up to, say, a megabyte or something, uh, and found that in general, uh, performance increased uh, up until the point you got to about half of the uh, L2 cache size, and then uh, you know performance falls off a cliff again, uh, just like they found here. So it's very interesting to to look at this and see, you know, where improvements might be able to be made. Yeah, especially in an academic context, and that people mm -hmm. outside of the project, I would say, are also investigating that. Yeah, it's definitely worth reading and the conclusions at the end are giving you the results. Okay, next we have some interesting things a bit from the past because it's, uh, well, still relevant today. Uh, back to the future, Unix wildcards gone wild. So at the beginning, uh, they talk about, uh, that's from 2014, but nevertheless, uh, we found it important enough to cover. 
Um, this article has nothing to do with modern hacking techniques like ASLR bypass, uh, ROP exploits, zero-day remote kernel exploits, or Chrome's chain L, uh, chain 14 different bugs to get there. Uh, nope, nothing of the above. This article will cover one interesting old-school Unix hacking technique, which will still work nowadays in 2013, way back when. Um, hacking techniques of which, to their surprise, even many security-rated people haven't heard of. That is probably because nobody ever really talked about it before. Uh, what they decided to write on this subject is because, to them personally, it's pretty funny to see what can be done with simple Unix wildcard poisoning tricks. And, of course, the beginning is what are wildcards in Unix, you know, the asterisk, the question mark, the brackets, uh, the tilde? Yeah. And so they show, of course, ls star.php, list all the PHP files in the current directory, so, the wilderness starts in part 3. Uh, wildcards, as the name states, are wild by their nature, but moreover, in some cases, wildcards can go berserk. Uh, during the initial phase of playing with this interesting wildcard tricks, I've talked with dozens dozen old-school Unix admins and security people, and just how to find out many of them knows about wildcard tricks and potential danger that they pose. Yes, everyone, of course, has uh, run RM star at one point or another, or RMRF star, but there is more things you can accidentally do. A simple trick behind this technique is when using shell wildcards, especially asterisk, the Unix shell will interpret files beginning with hyphen, or the dash, character as command line arguments to executed command or programs. That leaves space for variations of classic channeling attacks. So, for example, uh, here's an ls-aal normal file listing, which has three directories, dir1, dir2, dir3, and three files, file1, file2, file3. And another file, cord-rf. Hmm. Okay, so you want to get rid of this stuff in the directory, and you run, of course, rm star in this case. And ls-aal shows you everything's gone, directories are not there, the files are not there anymore, but the file called dash rf is still there huh um yeah so that, that one's a bit interesting because it's actually one of the differences between linux and bsd that people don't always think about so the way arguments for commands are processed in bsd is you can have you know you have your rm and then you can have dash r dash f etc um and all your flags but as soon as you have something that's not a flag once you put a file name Everything after that is also a file name. Mm. And you can't have additional flags later. And so in this case, if when you did rm star, if the file dash rf happens to be first, then the same thing will happen. Uh, you will delete everything except for the file actually called rf, and it'll do that. But if the first file happens to be, in this case, it would be dir1, maybe, because it's uppercase, then the dash rf on the end is actually just going to be treated as a file name, and it's going to delete the file called dash rf and not accidentally delete the directories. Right? It'll, it'll error out on each of the directories and say, no, I couldn't delete those. Mm -hmm. uh, so the order of the flags matters uh, on BSD, because with BSD getOps, as soon as you have something that's not a flag or an argument to a flag, you're into parameters and nothing else after it's a flag. Whereas in GNU, they specifically allow you to do something like ls star dash al. Mm. <laughs> uh, whereas in BSD, that would look, that would ls every file and then also tell you there's no file called dash al. Whereas ls 
dash al star will work. Mm. As you can see, there's this is more of a feature. It's not really a bug. It's not a limitation of the BSD getOps. It's that it also solves the problem of how do you tell if somebody provided an argument to a flag that doesn't take an argument. Hmm. Yep. Uh, this came up on during the FreeBSD bugathon recently. Uh, where someone was using the lowercase i on the netstat command, uh, I think based on Linux, I think uses dash i as the interval, and you provide the number of seconds you want it to refresh the screen. On BSD, you, you don't need a flag for that. You just put the number of seconds at the end. And lowercase i means all interfaces, mm. which does something completely different. Hmm. So dash i2 and then some other flags uh, doesn't, in fact, provide the argument 2 to the flag i, because the flag i doesn't take any arguments. Um, and it causes the command not to do what they expected, but it fails in a safer way than the, the GNU one would. So anyway, yes, like you're saying, this would end up uh, being expanded by the shell to rm dir1, dir2, dir3, file1, file2, file3-rf. Uh, and because on GNU-based rm, or because of GNU getOps, uh, the rm command will accept that dash rf at the end and treat it as if it was at the beginning, uh, and we'll delete those directories when you didn't expect them to. Yep. Uh, whereas on BSD, as soon as you have something that's not a flag or an argument to a flag, or one in this case, um, then no other flags are processed. So there's a way to protect yourself from this. Uh, what you do is you put dash dash just by itself before you put the file names, and that will cause GetOps, whether it's BSD or GNU, to stop accepting flags. So everything after this is a file name. And so it's how you, you know, if you wanted to purposely delete the file called rm, or, or called dash rf, if you just try to do rm dash rf, mm -hmm. it'd be like, you have to provide a file name. Yeah. And uh, so it's rm dash dash space dash whatever. And that's how you can delete a file that's name starts with a dash. Of course, you can also just do, you know, in the, in the singular case, you can do rm dot slash dash rf or whatever and there's lots of other ways to do it as well yeah quoted there's yeah the uh, they also demonstrate how to do the same or similar with change own and change mod so in case yeah so sometimes it's you know you're not running the command or you don't have control over the command that's being run right so in this rm example it's like oh if i put this file in this directory when the rm runs it'll delete too much stuff or whatever that's a good contrived example but maybe doesn't make that much sense but if you think of things more like a website where there might be a process that goes and ch owns all the files that get uploaded to the user nobody. So in the uploads directory, it runs ch own dash capital R nobody colon nobody startup PHP. Well, if you can cause uh, via some exploit there to be a file in that directory called dash dash reference equals some other file, then suddenly uh, the ch own command on the GNU ch own command, which has this dash dash reference thing, will ignore the nobody colon nobody you put in the command line and chown all the files to whatever permissions are on that other file that you provided via the command line. Mm -hmm. Tricky. Uh, so in, in their example, there's a file called .drf.php, and it's owned by the user Leon. And so after you run the chown nobody nobody on the PHP files, it ends up with all the files owned by the Leon user instead, and you're very confused. Mm -hmm. um, but it's because it's actually smuggling in that dash dash reference equals command line argument, which on GNU chown causes all the files owner and group uh, to be copied from some other file rather than whatever you put on the command line. <laughs> yep. 
And the same is true for change mod, where you can get a bit more permissions than you would normally have with the same reference trick. If you do change mod 000 star, then instead of removing all the permissions, you have all the permissions suddenly on all these files. Yes. And you can think immediately, oh, I can use that and point it at some uh, set UID file that's owned by root. And now I have my file set so that whoever runs it will run it as root. Mm -hmm. There's also a trick for tar, uh, but we leave you to discover this yourself. So it's an interesting article. Definitely don't try this at home or at work. Uh, use a test machine, a virtual environment. Yeah, that's not, what VMs are for. Yeah, not connected to any network, hopefully. So that way you can get uh, a safe environment to test these out. Okay, then we have Unix Wars for you. Uh, this is from livinginternet.com. And that starts with, we knew from experience that the essence of communal computing as supplied by remote access, time-shared machines, is not just to type programs into a terminal instead of a key punch, but to encourage close communication, which is a quote from Dennis Ritchie, the evolution of the Unix time-sharing system from 1996. Um, but it talks a bit about dozens of different operating systems have been developed over the years, but only Unix has grown in so many uh, varieties. There are three main branches for uh, factors have facilitated this growth. The four big things that caused Unix to be how it was were portability. It was the first widely used operating system written in a high-level language, C, making it possible to run it on different hardware architectures. The modifiability, since it was written in C, uh, it was relatively straightforward to make modifications and enhancements versus if it was had been written in assembly like most other operating systems had been at the time. The fact that the software was, or the source code was available, you know, uh, this is before we had whatever we would call open source, but the original version was developed at AT&T Bell Labs, uh, which was a nonprofit research institute. Uh, so the source code was permitted to be uh, published and shared with others, and that caused kind of the sharing. And the fact that it was just an open system. Research scientists designed it as an open modular system with a host of utilities and features to assist with the development and integration of new applications. It wasn't written for one specific thing. It was written to basically be a workbench uh, for doing whatever it is you were trying to do. Uh, so Unix is, in the end, kind of came out to three main branches of Unix. Uh, the System 5-based Unixes, the BSD Unixes, and the Open Systems. So System 5, in the late 1970s, a few companies started to develop products based on the AT&T Unix code. Uh, in 1979, AT&T announced that they intended to uh, commercialize Unix themselves and establish the Unix Systems Laboratory, or USL, to develop a uh, supportable product. Um, by 1983, USL published the first release of their new commercial baseline, calling it System 5 Release 1, or SVR1. And it goes on how that all happened. And then BSD Unix, uh, in November of 1973, Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie presented a paper on Unix at the Symposium on Operating System Principles at Purdue University where Bob Fabry from the University of California at Berkeley heard about their work. Uh, he requested a copy of the system and received Unix 4th uh, edition in January of 1974, and a group of UCB computer scientists and mathematicians began working with the system. In 1975, graduate student Bill Joy and Chuck Haley started working uh, with the Unix system, and they wrote a line editor called EX and the Pascal language compiler for the system, uh, which Joy released in 1977 as the first Berkeley software distribution, or 1BSD, and then 
we got two BSD and we got VI and term caps and so on, DARPA and networking and, you know, the rest of the history is there. And then lastly, open systems. In 1982, the mini computer industry was beginning to grow. Several computer companies began to develop commercial versions of Unix, some of these based on System 5 and some based on BSD Unix. Each vendor differentiated their system by adding unique features, but also recognized that they had a common interest in preventing AT&T from monopolizing the market. Several efforts were made in the 1980s to develop an open Unix specification and standards such as the IEEE POSIX group and a European group of companies called X Open, but they had limited success. In 1988, in response to AT&T's alliance with Sun, several vendors formed a group called the Open System Foundation to develop a new Unix operating system from open specifications and end their dependence on the AT&T code. This OSF slash one system was released in 1991, but it wasn't as mature or established uh, and so there was only slow adoption uh, as some of the components went to uh, AT&T's biggest competitors like DEC and IBM. In 1993, a lot of the fight went out of the Unix wars when AT&T left the computer business and sold System 5 to Novell, who then assigned the rights to the X slash open group. In 1996, uh, OSF and the X open merged to create the open group, which still promotes uh, open system standards today. And in the late 1990s, the internet began to coalesce around Linux, which was the first Unix system released under the GNU license. Mm -hmm. Yep, nice history write-up. And uh, yeah, good to know. Uh, this week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Head over to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow and start taking backups. You'll regret it if you don't. Tarsnap is super easy. You just create an account and put at least $5 in, and then you start backing up. Making your backup is just a single one-liner. You can cron tab it and not have to worry about it. Uh, it's completely pay-as-you-go, so you won't get a surprise bill. You put the money in ahead of time, and then you start doing backups, uh, and you'll get a warning when you're running low of money, and you put in some more money. It means that you can never get a surprise bill for your backups. And Tarsnap is really smart. It does segmentation and deduplication to avoid uploading anything that's already been uploaded to the cloud and to find the smallest difference between the files on your disk and what you've already backed up. Then it compresses all of that and then encrypts and signs it and sends it up uh, into the cloud. The important thing is the encryption and signing that happens happens with a key that only you have. Unlike other services like say Dropbox that claim they support, they encrypt your files. It's, well, they encrypt everybody's files on their server at once with one key that they have. Not really helpful to you <laughs> since, you know, you might not want the people at your backup service being able to access your backup. And that's where Tarsnap comes in. Being for truly paranoid people, the idea is that it's encrypted with a key that you have done by source code that you have access to and before it's sent to the cloud. And as long as you keep your key secure, then your data is secure. Yep. For payment, you can use uh, PayPal or Stripe. And it's fairly easy to just process this and have the backups that you deserve securely and stable and available when you need them. Hopefully never. All right, it's time for feedback and questions. In this week's episode, we receive feedback and questions from you but in future episodes, there might be less because we don't get enough. Uh, to get this, we ask you to send your questions, comments, feedback, show ideas 
to feedback at bsdnow.tv. And we thought we could maybe do another episode, a special episode, where you could ask us questions. So if we collect uh, enough of them, then we would do another episode like this. So this would be not a regular one, but we could answer your questions that always would be burning on your under your fingers that you always wanted to know from us. Um, if we have enough to fill a whole episode, we will do this. Um, so any kind of questions should be sent to feedback at bsdnow.tv as well with maybe a separate um, subject so that we can distinguish them. Maybe interview questions. We can probably find those in the stream of <laughs> emails we'll get. So yeah, if you always wanted to know something from us and we'll maybe do a spe special episode like this, then uh, send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Okay, Chris is the first this week and has a message for us about installing FreeBSD 13 current. Uh, first off, Chris writes, thanks for an awesome show. Thank you. I've been a listener for several years now and have learned a lot from you all. Oh yes, I'm in the same department. Uh, keep up the great work. I recently installed FreeBSD 13 current on my Lenovo Yoga 720 uh, 13 IKB to give it another test drive. I ran into trackpad issues in the past, but I noticed there is a generic HID layer project that looked promising. He provides the resource on GitHub for us. Um, after a quick install and a reboot, I was pleasantly surprised to have a working trackpad. Everything else worked, but Wi-Fi was dreadfully slow. It occurred to me that Beehive might offer a solution. I could pass through the Wi-Fi card to a Linux distro and use the Linux driver to push the device. Then I could do some simple networking to route my FreeBSD host traffic through that virtual machine. As it turns out, that works quite well. Uh, here's a run through of the steps I've followed. Yeah, I know people have done this before when uh, that particular Wi-Fi card wasn't even supported on FreeBSD yet. Mm -hmm. uh, or if you have like a Broadcom that isn't supported. Yeah, that's, that's quite uh, the trick to run this through m multiple layers if networking not, doesn't have enough layers for you already. Yep. Uh, so what they do is they use PCIconf-L-V uh, and find the device. And you can see it's IWM at PCI0 colon 63 colon 0 colon 0. And it tells you how that's your Intel wireless 8265. Based on that, they know that the device is at address 63. So in their loader.conf, they set the Beehive pass-through device to 63 slash 0 slash 0. And so after a reboot, when you do that, PCI conf L V, you'll see that instead of attaching to the IWM driver, it is now PPT0. So it's attached to the pass through driver. That uh, means it's available for Beehive to you. Okay. Uh, then they create uh, a Beehive VM. You can follow the steps in the FreeBSD handbook for that. And basically, you have to just add to your Beehive invocation that you want to use the pass through device and pass through that uh, the Wi Fi card. Depending on the Linux distro you choose, the IWL Wi-Fi driver may be included on the ISO. Unfortunately, I selected Debian 10 and it did not, so I had to download the driver and get it uh, installed in the VM. There are several ways to do this. I decided uh, to just mount an image file that happened to have it. And then they show that when using the native IWM driver, they were getting about 22 megabits per second. And uh, when using the... Uh, Linux driver, they got about 250 megabits per second. Mm, that's decent. Yeah, and they write, or Chris writes at the bottom, uh, showing us a couple of performance numbers. Needless to say, I'm pretty happy with the results and wanted to share the concept with the community. Thank you, you just did in a kind of a how-to style. 
Um, while I would prefer the native IWM driver to deliver one of the same bandwidth as the Linux version, this is an acceptable workaround for me. Oh yes, uh, yeah, if the straightway doesn't work, then you have to jump a couple of hoops, but in the end you have Wi-Fi. Very nice. Thank you for writing that up. And next up we have Dane about FreeBSD history lesson. Uh -huh. uh, it's a bit shorter, but nevertheless important. Uh, goes like, I was wondering if you could do a bit of a history lesson on FreeBSD. In 2015, Jordan Hubbard talked about FreeBSD needing something like macOS's LaunchD and to think about cloud computing. How did the community respond and what's happening with init-ng? Thank you both and love the show. Yeah, there's some interesting things there. I think it's something the community is still working on, but I think the general was not that we needed something specifically like LaunchD, but needed to think about the fact that nowadays the operating system is kind of responsible for writing a bunch of services that the apps then use on top of it and it's you know something that we could probably do a slightly better job at um we've had some interesting ideas uh about it but it's mostly been a matter of finding the time to actually come up with a, a stronger plan and actually do it which has been a bit harder yeah there are some people working on that here and there and sometimes we see patches floating by but uh, I guess having a fully integrated solution is a bit uh, further down the road. Um, but nevertheless, it's it's an interesting space and a whole different one than, you know, embedded or the desktop space. So all of these also need to be included in some kind of FreeBSD packaging that everyone can use because that's kind of the flexibility and power of FreeBSD that you can use it for all kinds of things and build your own thing on top of that. And so having a completely cloud-only computing solution may be a bit too far in one direction, and we always try to balance that a little bit. Uh, we talked a little bit about RC Order in our last episode. Uh, maybe that's interesting to you if you haven't listened to it yet uh, regarding the init NG. Uh, the init system is always uh, interesting for people to kind of rewrite and, you know, I'll make it better and quicker and all these things, uh, which is a nice project, definitely, but there are so many out there, it's kind of difficult to find out which is the best one to adopt. But yeah, the discussions are ongoing and we'll be giving you the info when that happens or if something develops into a more uh, to-be-committed-soon prototype. But at the moment, there's no uh, candidate that will make the, the run, at least not uh, as far as I know. But yeah, definitely a good a way to uh, remind us about these things. And um, yeah, it's always good to have these uh, things that we plan to do. History uh, tells you sometimes that or it, you will see that many things develop differently than you originally planned. But sometimes you look back and say, ah, remember we talked about that way back when and what happened to it? Okay, uh, I think that's um, for this one. And another one is Mark, who sent us a question about Linux Compat. Mark writes, Hiya, Alan, Benedict, and JT. Had a quick question about the Linux Compat thing in FreeBSD. Can it be used to run Linux X applications? I've only seen demos of people using it for non-GUI programs. Uh, so yes, I was just looking. Doesn't seem we have them anymore, but we used to have the Linux versions of Firefox available as packages. But there are lots of applications that do this uh there's also a bunch of games uh linux games that you can compile and run on freebsd in x but the example i have off the top of my head is komodo edit k-o-m-o-d-o dash edit which is a graphical ide that i use for writing a lot of shell scripts and php code and well i write c in it although it's not really great for c but it's 
the editor I've been used to for so many years of writing, you know, Perl, PHP, Python, and config files and mm -hmm. JavaScript and HTML, that it was just what I was used to. But yeah, it's an X application. You can get the Linux binary from the company that makes it uh, and run it on FreeBSD. Yep. Chat room notes that Sublime Text, which is another IDE for Linux, also runs on FreeBSD in the same fashion. Mm -hmm. So less porting work. It just works out of the box using the Compat system. Uh, let's do another one uh, from Mason about the Apropo battery. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> Apropo battery. Um, battery is the topic and... Uh, he's waited a bit of a while to get the answer and also sent this to FreeBSD file system at freebsd.org mailing list. Okay, um, let's see. Um, regarding the latest show on Linux, a propo battery finds the ACPI man page rather than adding a battery man page to FreeBSD. It might make more sense to make sure that the APM man page comes up when someone uses the traditional Unix apropos command to find relevant sources. He shows us a comparison of the two. Yeah, when you run those. But yeah, so basically he's suggesting uh, making sure that when someone does a man page search for battery, they get directed to the information that will tell them about how to get information about their battery. Yeah, that could be added maybe as a man page reference link. Um, if you would file that as a bug report. And then, yeah, he, he had a second question about uh, the ZFS mail server thing, uh, but we did actually answer that in a recent episode. Yeah, we covered that. So um, a couple of weeks before this one, there is the answer. But definitely, thanks for sending that. Um, oh, let's do another one because we have time. Uh, Paul is asking us a topic idea. Oh giving us one more like uh, Paul writes I would like to propose a topic sure jail management software while it is freebeast specific I guess it is important enough I was a longtime user of EasyJail, which seems to be recommended the jail management tool for FreeBSD. But last year, uh, he switched to CBSD and was impressed by its capabilities. It's not only usual, the creation, run, and destroy, but uh, unique features as a jail server cluster and jail motion between servers. It can also manage Beehive and Zen VMs. Yeah, and I know uh, Michael Lucas and Dan Gill have spent a lot of time playing with IOCage which is also uh, the one that's built into FreeNAS. Uh, and it seems quite interesting. And then there's a bunch of other ones too. And, you know, the vanilla stuff has gotten uh, better over time as well. Isn't uh, also something happening in FreeBSD where we try to uh, resurrect um, UCL compatibility for managing jails? Um, <clears throat> I looked at it before. The main problem was one or two of the important uh, items take two parameters, not one which doesn't map very well to UCL. And the other thing is, it's really super handy in the jail config files to be able to do, you know, define the host name, and then later on be able to use that host name as part of the, the directory name for where the files go and stuff, right? To use basically dollar sign host as, or dollar sign name or whatever it happens to be in the values all over the place. Well, UCL supports subbing in values like that, you have to define those values before you parse the config file. They're not going to be values from parsing the config file. So it seems almost like you'd have to do it twice, like parse the config file to learn what dollar name was, and then parse it again to substitute dollar name in. Uh, and it almost like you'd have to do it recursively or something, it gets a little hairy. So I hadn't figured out how to do all of it as smartly as it currently does. Although, you know, the answer might be to just leave dollar name alone and process it with the existing code that's already there could be yeah but yeah getting the the includes and other features from ucl into it 
would be nice. It just looks like there might have to be a couple of minor changes to the config syntax. Uh, and that is slightly annoying to people, I'm sure. But yeah, it's an idea. Yeah, there's definitely developments happening. Yeah. And yeah, if you have maybe, or Paul, if you can provide some kind of, I compared these uh, jail management solutions on the FreeBSD as a blog post or some other post and send it to us, we will definitely cover that because it might be definitely a topic for the show and interesting to other people who maybe are looking, oh, I have so many jails now, I might want to do it professionally with a management solution. Um, this might be a good uh, way to select a proper one or give people a, a chance to compare these. Okay, uh, hopefully that gave you a couple of pointers and this episode was interesting to you. We will definitely welcome more feedback and questions to feedback at bsdnow.tv and we uh, can also be viewed live on twitch.tv slash bsdnow. Otherwise, you watch the audio recordings or the video recordings we have on our website from last time we did live recordings. And hopefully you like this episode and will be back with us next time. <music>